You may be seated. We're back in Luke's Gospel today. Chapter 24, the last chapter. If you have your Bible, you can turn there or you can follow along on page 11 in your bulletin. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him... They did not see. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Moved by your spirit, we pray, Father, now as we hear this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friday afternoon, Sarah and I had an opportunity to spend a couple of hours with Simone. For those of you who don't know this sister, she is almost certainly in the very, very last stages of dying of cancer. And it was a very strange couple of hours to sit there with the kind of contrast of seeing the ravages of this disease that have turned her into a kind of shell of herself physically 
And yet contrasted with that, I cannot even tell you the, the conversation we had. It was so life-giving. It was so full of Jesus. It was so full of hope, so full of fire. And I think that the realization that that door that Simone has almost reached is a door that every one of us in this room is also irreversibly walking toward. We will go through it. Has given me a real urgency to this message today. Do you know one of the striking things about Luke's gospel? He says nothing about the resurrection. I'd never noticed that till this week. Now, he, of course, refers to the resurrection before it happened and after it happened. He says nothing about the event itself. See, I kind of want Andrew Peterson's song, His Heart Beats, right here. I want to have this scene where all of a sudden his heart beats and the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins and that air that is stale with death becomes breath in his lungs. I, I want to I I I hear about the resurrection. I want to pound my drum, sing that song. That's what I want. Absolute silence about it. Because the focus of chapter 24 in Luke is not the resurrection event. The focus in this final chapter is how disciples come to recognize this, to, to recognize, beloved, this whole new reality that we express in the words, Christ is risen. The angels say that in verse 6, Christ is risen. By verse 34, the apostles and the disciples and the apostles are saying together, indeed, Christ is risen. They have recognized what this is and what it means, and Luke's chapter is about how they get there to recognize what's really going on here. And that, that focus for Luke, as you'll recall, is not at all new. I mean, it, from, from literally verse 1 of his Gospels, he's writing to his friend Theophilus, he makes it clear that his aim in this Gospel is not merely to tell again the things that God has accomplished among us, Actually, Luke regards all of that that God has accomplished as already amply attested by the eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word who have spoken to Theophilus and others. Luke has a another aim. He wants Theophilus and he wants us to have, as he puts it, certainty concerning these things that God has accomplished. Things that we have been taught. He wants us to have certainty. Beloved, the kind of certainty that transforms disciples into apostles. You know what an apostle is? Someone who is sent on a mission. How do we come to recognize who Jesus is and what God has accomplished through him? I mean, y'all know the data. I'm not going to tell you anything today you've never heard before, but how do we come to recognize who Jesus is and what God has done through him in a way that morphs us from being kind of semi-muddled disciples into zealous fearless witnesses of the risen Lord. That's Luke's concern. That is every faithful pastor's concern. Because this thing we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what God has done through him, that gospel has not done its full work in you and me, brothers and sisters, until that gospel fuels a fire of mission in our daily lives. That's when you know the gospel has done its thing. Christ is risen. You know what that means, brothers and sisters? Christ is risen means unironically. 
with no wink, no ha-ha, we just say these things, no memeing it, unironically, the fact that Christ has risen means everything in the whole cosmos is different. And we just can't stop, we just can't be silent about it. Our witness may not be noisy. You know, please God, in our time, it's not noisy. But where there is certainty, there is witness. And that's what Luke is after. So let's just hear Luke for a minute. I want to start in verses 1 through 12. I just want to talk about the witnesses. And then I want to talk briefly in verses 13 through 35 about the journey. So let's just start by looking at the witnesses in the first 12 verses. So chapter 23 ends, if you back up in your Bible, it ends with a group of ladies who are keeping Sabbath before they go to anoint Jesus' dead body, to honor him in, in his burial. And chapter 24, as I said, just picks up the story as if nothing has happened. Verse 1, they're on their way to the tomb to do what they were going to do after the Sabbath. There's no mention of, the, of what's happened. But they get there, you know, and you can see it. They discover right away that something here is very different from what they thought they were walking into. The stone is rolled away. They get inside, and weirder still, there, there's no body. And their understandable reaction to this is a lot of perplexity. And I was imagining this week a bunch of you Trinity ladies, if you were on a mission like this to do something like this, what would happen? The buzz among you all is you would talk about this, trying to figure out what's going on. And they're having their little women, you know, in a circle talk thing, trying to figure out like what, what on earth is going on here. And then into this sort of buzz of, you know, ladies, like what's, what's happening? As if this is perfectly normal, into this very human, painfully relatable situation, there just breaks this there bursts this dazzling message from heaven. And these two witnesses, God likes two witnesses, these two witnesses, you know, these angel beings, they, 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 they talk to the women and they just make it crystal clear why you're not going to find what you're looking for. And I actually like to think the angels are kind of laughing as they say this. Why, why are you seeking the living among the dead? What, what are you all doing? You're confused. <laughs> and the angels hint that this should not be a surprise. You guys are like, what are you doing here? You should know better. Didn't Jesus talk to you about this? And there's a reminder right away in the text of this mental fog. These cramped interpretive boxes that have just blurred the disciples' view of Jesus all throughout his earthly ministry. We've seen this fog again and again. They're like looking at Jesus through fog in their, in their heads. And, and the angels give us a hint here. That fog now absolutely must be burned away if they're going to have any hope of recognizing Jesus as he is now. Now, I just love how this goes down. I love it. Because I try to imagine if this happened among us. I mean, I imagine, let's say, a bunch of us guys are sitting around, you know, maybe enjoying some cigars, and we're just kind of doing, you know, bro time, and all of a sudden a bunch of you ladies burst into the room with this tale of something you have seen and heard. And in fact, you tell us that angels have talked to you. And I try to imagine, you know, sort of the dynamics of a moment like that. Because, look, guys, I know none of you are chauvinists. I know you would never sink to mansplaining. But I have to think that if a bunch of our ladies burst in and started chattering to us about this crazy thing that angels talk to us, I think some of us, I can imagine myself being like, easy girls, we'll check it out, <laughs> right? Well, in this time, in this time, this was a society that was unapologetically chauvinistic. This was a society in which there was an outright prejudice against female testimony. In fact, females were 
it was a disaster for your case if you had to rely on female testimony in court because the men of that time just looked down on women. Thank the Lord for what Jesus has done to the way that we think about gender relations. That is one of the fruits of the gospel. Women were often despised in this culture. Their testimony was despised. In fact, I read this week something that kind of was shocking even to me. There was a, a historian of the period uh, named Josephus. I'm sure you've probably heard of him. Major, like monster theolog- uh, uh, historian of the time. And he actually says in his works that women tes- female testimony, women's testimony in court is disqualified by, and I quote, giddiness and impetuosity. How's that, ladies, for some respect, right? And yet... These women are God's chosen witnesses. You know, Peter goes to check their story like a man. No angels for him. God already appeared to the women. You need to go back and listen to those sisters. Now, I've got to tell you, I would have done this a bit differently if it were me and not because of any of the gender stuff. I would have done this differently in my infinite wisdom because if I had been doing, running the PR campaign for this thing, I would have had Jesus, not a couple of angels, thank you, but Jesus himself make a personal appearance. And I would have had him make a personal appearance not only to the 11, you know, the disciples who matter. I would have had Jesus make a personal appearance to the chief priests. I would have had him make a personal appearance to Pilate, thank you, and Herod. I might have even had Jesus drop in on Caesar. And I would have had him show up and, you know, have some airtime with Josephus. I would have had Jesus appearing to every journalist from Rome to Jerusalem. That's what I would have done. And if I had done that, I would have played into the hands of centuries of conspiracy theorists who have said again and again and again, reading Luke's gospel, obviously this is a hoax Christians made up to dupe people. One of the clearer proofs that Luke is absolutely not fabricating this story to dupe people is that nobody in his time would have tried to dupe people like this. They would never have put the most important news in the hands of of women. God does. That's one of the ways we know this is absolutely not something Christians made up to dupe people. God, through Luke, and I love this, he turns us to these voices that at the time nobody's inclined to take seriously. And he basically says, here's my truth from outside all of your little boxes. The one thing you can never say ever, somebody made this up. And so here we have it, the witnesses. God has spoken from heaven through angels to these women. He has spoken the biggest news in the history of the world. That's not an exaggeration. And what the disciples hear is a bunch of giddy girls chattering to their discredit. And I want to ask you guys something. What do these disciples actually need to really grasp what has happened? They don't believe the women doesn't matter to them if the women actually heard from angels. What do you think they need to be like, oh, this is for real. We get it. We understand what's going on. What do they need? What would you guys say? I think I know what they would say. It's pretty obvious. Come on now. I'd like to see Jesus, thank you. I'd like to see Jesus. And yet, by God's design, he, the angels say, is not here. You can't see him. You can't touch him because they naturally, what they actually need is something way deeper to burn off the fog. They need something much deeper than actually seeing Jesus to burn off the fog. And that brings us to this very strange turn in the story 
the journey in verses 13 through 35. So now we're just left with, you know, these clueless men and the believing women and this whole sort of hubbub in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Luke does something. It's like, what, what is this? We leave the 11, you know, those disciples who really, really matter, and we find ourselves following two otherwise unknown disciples. And they're trudging sadly away from Jerusalem on a seven-mile trip that afternoon and evening, and you get the impression they're just kind of like, they're just devastated, and they just don't want to hang out anymore and listen to all of this because they're just confused and sad. And it is, it is, crazily enough, to these two, way out here away from the center of the action, away from the you know, important disciples, to these two out here, the risen Lord, for the first time in Luke's gospel, appears. Only he doesn't. This is so weird. He comes, but he does not reveal himself to them. Why does Jesus not just reveal himself? It's me, back from the dead. Why not? It's so, like, straightforward. Why does he stay incognito well into the evening? And here's a real brain twister. Why, in that moment when they finally recognize it's you, does he vanish? Why all this weirdness? Why not just show up and say what's going on? There are two related reasons why I believe Jesus does not appear in a way they can recognize. One reason is that if he were to show himself to them now, visibly, they would still see him through their fog. The fog, you'll notice in verse 21, is still there. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And if all of a sudden Jesus is back visibly there, guess what they're going to think? Okay, hit restart, now he's going to redeem Israel. And what do they have in mind when they say redeem Israel? You know, we're not told. I expect it probably has something to do with the Roman overlord under whom they are still suffering a kind of exile. But whatever this hope is, we hope that he would redeem Israel, whatever that hope is in their heads, it is way too small for what God has actually done through Jesus. And so Jesus needs to burn away this false hope, this fog, this we know who Jesus is and what he's going to do thing. He's got to burn all that away in order that these disciples might recognize, please hear this, beloved, that Jesus has not been resuscitated but resurrected. You do understand the difference. Lazarus was resuscitated. He was given air in his lungs and his blood flowed again and his brain function resumed and he was back in this life and he eventually died again. That's resuscitation. It's, it would be Jesus being back in all the reality he was already in and we restart the plan for this broken, limited reality in which he was before. Jesus needs to show these disciples, I'm not resuscitated. I am resurrected. It's a whole different thing. That's one reason. I think a second reason why he doesn't just show himself here is that most future believers in Jesus, most people who will eventually believe Christ is risen, people like you, are going to believe without seeing. They're going to believe without seeing. And Jesus sets a pattern here. Remember that Luke is writing to strengthen the faith of a disciple, a friend of his, who never saw the resurrected Lord. 
He's writing to Theophilus to strengthen his faith. He never saw Jesus. And Luke is getting ready to write the book of Acts, <laughs> in which he's going to show how thousands of people came to faith in Jesus after he had already vanished back into heaven. And he kind of is showing the seeds of all of that here. So we have these two disciples, and they don't see. They don't see. They don't recognize. Now, there's a very strange throwback here because you have two people walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. Interestingly, N.T. Wright, I don't know if he's correct, but he thinks that Cleopas is actually a disciple named Clopas in John's gospel who had a wife named Mary, and Wright thinks that this is Clopas and Mary walking with the Lord. But there are these two people walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, and as in that other story that that should ring bells about, Jesus, the Lord, asks two, two questions. And in these two questions, he begins to expose not just how confused these disciples are. They are really confused. They have no idea what to make of all of these weekend headlines, let alone this really weird story they heard from their sisters in, uh, earlier in the day. But Jesus isn't just exposing their confusion. Jesus is exposing what he later calls their foolishness and their slowness of heart to believe, verse 25. You're slow of heart to believe. And then you'll notice that Jesus, in verse 27, he takes the initiative. I want you guys to notice this. He takes the initiative now. He's about to burn off the fog. <laughs> because what these disciples need, what you and I need, what people in general need above all else, whether it's Cleopas and his companion, whether it's Theophilus who received this gospel, whether it's us today, what we truly need to encounter the risen Jesus is to understand the scriptures. That's what we most basically need. In fact, I'll go further than that. If you do not understand the scriptures and Jesus makes a personal appearance to you, you will misinterpret what you see. Do you understand that, beloved? People like, I just want Jesus to show up and show himself to me. If you do not understand the scriptures, if Jesus shows himself to you, you will misinterpret what you are seeing. And Jesus does not show himself to their physical, to, 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 their, to, to their, their eyes of recognition. He doesn't, he doesn't unveil himself before them, nor, and Walt Moberly is so good on this, he does also does not offer new revelations. He does not offer the key of secret knowledge about the spirit world that he has been to and the afterlife. I mean, if there's ever a moment in all of history for someone to be like, I'm back and I've got the secrets, as a number of the Gnostic Gospels wanted to say, Jesus offers none of that. Neither a personal appearance nor some you know, secret key of knowledge. What he does is he takes these two disciples and he plunges them deep into their existing scriptures to show from the scriptures why the two things that mystified these disciples the most, which is that he died, and now he's disappeared, to show from the scriptures why those two things were, as he says, necessary. How could Christ not suffer if you know the scriptures? I mean, from... From the very first gospel that God himself preaches in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent when he says there's going to come someone to crush your head. From the very first gospel in the Bible, it is clear that the, the coming one, the Messiah, we could call him, the, the Savior to come, who, you know, he's still, it's far from clear 
who he's going to be and how it's going to happen. But whenever he comes, what is obvious from that first moment is that he's not going to be saving us from military forces. If only Messiah needed to march on Rome. If only it were that simple. No, this one who is to come, he's got to save us from the serpent. He's got to save us from death. He's got to save us, save us from that flaming sword that the cherubim holds at the entrance to God's presence. That, that's what he's got to save us from. He's going to have to absorb the serpent's death strike. Adam and Eve don't even get out of the garden before you realize that blood has to be shed to cover their nakedness. Animals die so they can be covered. That's the only way that God's house can be reopened to us. The whole animal sacrifice system throughout the Old Testament shows us this. Blood must be shed to reopen God's presence. And that's not the only indication that suffering will be part of Messiah's mission. In story after story after story of Christ figures in Israel's scriptures, various Christ figures, Savior figures, Deliverer figures, it becomes so very clear that a priest who comes to offer sacrifices for sins or a king who's sent to deliver God's people, or a prophet who comes to proclaim liberty to God's people, might actually be hated and rejected, even by the people he has come to save. Abel, Joseph, Moses, David, suffering. That's why the Apostle Paul can say Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. If you know the Scriptures, Christ had to suffer. His death should not have been the slightest shock But you see there in verse 27, it wasn't merely that the Christ had to suffer. It wasn't just necessary that he suffer. What then? Because the whole point of Israel's Bible is that through bruising, through suffering, through the shedding of blood, Christ is going to enter into God's glory. Whether you see it in Eden, whether you see it on Sinai, whether you see it in the tabernacle, in the temple, this one who is to come is going to enter into God's glory and then reopen that glory to us. And there are just these bizarre shadows in Israel's scripture of this kind of thing. There are these strange characters in Israel's Bible, anointed ones sent by God who seem able to walk in and out of the glory, the fire, the cloud of God's heavenly life. It's almost as if these characters kind of stand astride heaven and earth. You think about the high priest who could be in God's presence and also in our reality. And some of these characters, these, these, these savior figures who are like this, they, they wield the powers of the spirit realm over natural phenomena. Moses can part waters. He can turn rivers to blood. Elisha, you know, Elijah and Elisha, these dudes could like make axe heads float in water. They seem to exercise the divine power over earthly phenomena. They, they just straddle heaven and earth. They're in God's reality and in ours. And of course, all of those figures, bizarre as they are, kind of culminate in the book of Daniel, in this mysterious figure we call, is called the Son of Man, this, this human figure who approaches the Ancient of Days, God himself on his throne, in clouds, we're told, of divine glory. And how could the Savior who is prefigured in all of this not pass beyond the realm of what we can sense and what we can see? 
How could he not enter into glory? The entire scriptures testify that's what the Savior will have to do and then bring us there. Only he's different from uh, Moses. He's different from Elijah because he enters that glory as the one who crushed the serpent, as the one who broke the power of death. And so, as the New Testament tells us, he wields the power of an indestructible life by which he will bring many sons to glory. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 8, he will bring the entire creation into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign in that glory until he has made our bodies like his glorious body, able to walk in and out of God's heavenly glory by that power with which he is able to subdue all things to himself. That's who he is where we can stand astride heaven and earth. We can be in the glory cloud of God as well as in physical earthly reality. Of course, of course, disciples, he's no longer confined to life as you and I know it. That's our hope. He is in the glory of God. That's our hope. Because you see, brothers and sisters, Christ did not come to resuscitate you either. Some of you guys think of the resurrection as a resuscitation. Christ did not come to resuscitate us. He did not come to put us back into an existence where sin and death still have their effect. You're not gonna be back in this life as we know it now with sin and death still doing their thing. In fact, he didn't even come to put us back in Eden where sin and death might possibly have an effect. Adam and Eve were sinless, but there was the possibility of sin and death. There, there won't even be a possibility in this life we are we are going to be in through Christ. He died and rose again to bring us, we are told, into that very realm of God's life where death and sin can never possibly again have any effect whatsoever. Into glory and power and wealth and vitality that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, but you and I will because we will be raised. Fit to see God in the flesh. I'll try to say a little more about that next week. But you'll notice, as he opens the scriptures, it was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary for Christ to enter God's glory. You'll notice he does not just open the scriptures, and I'm almost done. He does not just open the scriptures. They are kind of, their hearts are burning with this. They're just trying to take it in. And then that evening, as he stays with them, he joins them for a meal. He's still unrecognized up until this moment and is when he breaks the bread in this Jewish fashion of breaking bread, giving thanks and distributing it, they're eating a meal together. That is when their eyes, think of Adam and Eve, their eyes are opened. But it's not to see their nakedness. It's to recognize the astonishing fact that at this table, with our hearts burning with the scriptures, we are sitting here in active fellowship with that Christ of scripture who has entered God's glory and is alive forevermore. We have come home at this table to way more than Eden. We are in the presence of God's glory. You notice their physical eyes don't see a single thing. Their physical eyes don't already see. Nothing about Jesus' physical appearance changes. It's not their physical eyes and what their physical eyes can see that has changed. What has changed is that their spiritual eyes in this meal have come to recognize this one who has in fact been there with them all along. The one who inhabits the glory of God and yet is present with them in the meal. And that is the pattern. 
Because as you read the book of Acts, what you discover is that in ages to come, as God's people gather together under the teaching of the scriptures, and we hear again that Christ had to suffer and die. We hear again that he had to enter God's glory, and he has opened that glory for us, and our hearts burn. And it isn't just heady scripture knowledge. In the breaking of bread and prayers, in table fellowship, in sitting together and enjoying the gifts of God in fellowship and prayer, in that life together under the word around the table, the people of God will recognize again and again and again with the certainty of the eyes of faith, the Lord is here. The risen one is here. And yet he vanishes from their sight. Why? Because he is here, but he is here as the one who is beyond earthly sight and sense. He is here as the boundless one who beckons us toward that glory that we will one day in glorified bodies fully share with him. He is not absent as he vanishes. He is transcendent as he vanishes. He is in our reality, beloved, but he cannot be held within it. He cannot be contained within it. He cannot be enclosed within it. And that is our comfort. That is our hope. This is not all there is. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. There is nothing more earthy than motherhood, as any mother knows. I mean, it doesn't get much earthier. But I want to encourage you moms today. You are preparing hearts and minds and bodies to walk in eternal friendship with the risen Lord. You are preparing your children one day, and this is true, to walk seamlessly between heavenly glory and a glorified earth in glorified bodies. That's what you're actually doing in all the earthiness of your daily work. In baptism, the bodies of your children were marked not for resuscitation, but for resurrection. So do your motherly work in that hope. Amen. Lift up our hearts to you, our Lord, even as you dwell among us. In your good name we pray. Amen.